You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, first page of the New Testament. It's a privilege to have my father-in-law here preaching. Last time I preached, my dad was here. Now my father-in-law's here. He came all the way down from Virginia just to hear me preach. Not really. He's here for Thanksgiving, but just happened to be preaching. So I appreciate his presence here this morning as an added bonus. Matthew chapter 1, I want you to put your imagination caps on this morning. I want you to imagine with me, this may take some, some imagination, but I want you to imagine two people who at the same time are claiming to be president of the United States. I know it's a stretch. So who's going to win, right? That's the question. Well, the one with the most proof. That's who's going to win. Well, the problem is they both claim to have the proof. And, of course, we have a court system that will determine where that proof lies. In much the same way, when Christ came into Jerusalem, he claimed to be the president or in his case, the Messiah. And this is the common response from the people of the time. Show us the proof. We want to see the proof. Now, when we turn to the book of Matthew, what we have before us is the proof that Jesus is the Messiah. Of course, Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. He said things like this, I and the Father are one. No man comes to, but to the Father but by me in John 14, 6. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Jewish people talking about Jesus says, he calls God his Father, making him equal with God. John 12 even says, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews picked up stones to kill him. Jesus claimed to be God, but where is the proof? Well, what we find in Matthew chapter 1 is the proof, and he starts with a genealogy. Now, when we look at a genealogy in our Western mindset, we open up to a list of names which seem kind of cold, sterile, distant maybe. But not so for the Jewish people. When they looked at this, it wasn't intimidating it was very interesting and necessary if someone was going to claim to be the Messiah that they could trace their lineage not just back to Abraham, but back to Abraham through David. William Barclay says in his commentary, the reason for this interest in pedigrees was that the Jews set the greatest possible store on purity of lineage. If any man, if in any man there was the slightest admixture of foreign blood, he lost his right to be called a Jew and a member of the people of God. Could you imagine that? This was important. Herod, the great king who ruled during this time of Christ, was always despised by the pure-blooded Jews because he was half Edomite. And we see the importance Herod attached to these genealogies from the fact that he had the official registers destroyed so that no one could prove a pure pedigree than his own. This could be one reason why Christ called him that 
old fox. But Matthew does something very interesting in this list of names. And this is what we're going to look at this morning, this list of names. He does something very interesting, which I think is very important for us to understand. The first thing he does is he traces Jesus' lineage back to David. And you see there at the end of the first section there, verses 2 through 6, at the end of that first paragraph, it says, um, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. That's very important. Because the Messiah had to come through the line of David because he himself would be a king. This is important in the New Testament because uh, of the theological truth that the Messiah had to come through the line of David. Peter stresses this when he preaches his first sermon, and the first sermon recorded in the New Testament, when he takes what, what David said about the Messiah and he applies it directly to Jesus. Paul speaks of Jesus Christ descended from David according to the flesh in Romans 1. In 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul says, Remember Jesus rose from the dead, the offspring of David. After healing a man, the people proclaimed, Can this be the son of David? Matthew 21, the triumphal entry, they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. And of course, the chief priests and scribes were indignant that they would refer to Jesus in this way. John records the words of Jesus in Revelation twenty-two sixteen, when Jesus says, I am the root and offspring of David. To attach Jesus to David was akin to saying that he was the Messiah. But Matthew does something else in this genealogy, which is very important. It's found in verse 17. He breaks up this genealogy into three sections. And he does so for a very specific reason. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to ba uh, Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Why would he do this? Well, when we look at a list of names, of course, we turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're kind of hurrying through it to get to the good stuff. We see names that we recognize, names that we see from Old Testament times, but then we see names we don't really recognize and we just kind of get lost in them. We just move on. But Matthew attached this and he divided it up into 14 generations and he skipped over some generations to get to that 14, 14, 14 mark. But he did so because he wanted to highlight the people that were necessary for the children of Israel to memorize. They didn't have books. You couldn't go to Amazon Prime, right, and order a scroll. It just didn't happen that way. They had to go to the synagogue. They had to read, but they also had to memorize. This is why Psalms like Psalm 119 are divided up into 22 sections according to the alphabet of the Hebrew um, lettering system. So they can memorize it. They committed a lot to memory. Now think about this. What we would normally skim through or gloss through, Matthew is saying, no, I want you to commit this to memory. It's that important. The third thing that Matthew does in the genealogy, which I think is instructive for us this morning, and which we're going to spend the most of our time on, is he ends each section with a king. And so there's three sections, there are three kings, and I've entitled this message, We Three Kings. All right. The first king comes at the end of the first section, David. The second one ends with, second section in verse 11, ends with Josiah. And then lastly, verse 16, we have Christ. These are really the three kings we're going to focus in on today. David, Josiah, and Christ. Why does he do this? 
Well, I believe that what Matthew is doing here is he's instructing us in the way to show the rise and fall of Israel. And in much the same way, he's also showing the rise and fall of every man who places their hope in success or goodness, but who also could place their hope in the Messiah. Three sections presenting three eternal truths that Israel has to learn, and frankly, we all must learn. And so they divide up into three points. One point is this, and this is my first point. Hope and success leads to a false sense of spiritual security. Hope and success leads to a false sense of spiritual security. Secondly, hope and goodness, this is our second section leading up to Josiah. Hope and goodness leads to a loss of security. And then our final section is Hope in Christ will lead to salvation, which is eternal security. My objective this morning is to present these truths to you so that you will find hope in Jesus as the one who saves you from your sins. He saves you from your sins, past, present, and future, but he also saves you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And what's instructive for us this morning is the presence of sin. So let's jump in here and look at the first section, if you will. Hope in success leads to a false sense of spiritual security. Have you ever had a false sense of security before? It usually comes when I play Monopoly with my children. They're savages. They're ruthless. If you want to see their competitive side, play Monopoly. But usually what happens is, I, and it usually happens about midway through the game, I've compiled some cash, I've got properties, I've got, I've got hotels on those properties, and I've got one little line, you know, with a bunch of properties, and I've got it all secure. I feel pretty good when I'm on that line. But then when I turn the corner, and I'm facing, you know, Pennsylvania Ave and Broadway, and my daughter owns both of those, and she's bought hotels on them, and I'm, I'm in trouble. That false sense of security, right, is there. And much the same way, what we find in this first section, verses 2 through 6, is that it is typified by success. Israel begins with this man named Abraham, verse 2. Abraham, the father of Isaac and Jacob. Who was Abraham? Well, Abraham was... A Gentile, an idolatrous man who was called out by God to become the father of the Hebrews. And through Isaac and then Jacob, when Jacob wrestled with God and God blesses him, he changes his name to Israel and then now we have the Israelites. But that's who Abraham was, the first convert, if you will, to God in that sense. And what we have in this section is a list of names that flowed from Abraham. What's surprising and what is shocking to the reader, though, is the list of women that are included in this genealogy, because women were not normally added to a genealogy, partly because they were just thought of as possessions of their husbands, not real people. 
But Matthew includes four women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Who were Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba? Well, if you think of Tamar, if you know anything about her, you know that she was a deliberate seducer of her father-in-law, an adulterer, and she had twins by her father-in-law. If you know Rahab, Rahab wasn't even a Hebrew. She wasn't Jewish. She was a Gentile, Canaanite. She was a prostitute. Ruth was not an Israelite. She was a Gentile as well. She was a Moabite. What do we know about the Moabites? Well, Deuteronomy 23.3 says this, No Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation, none belonging to them shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord forever. That was partly because the Moabites didn't welcome or help the Israelites when they were passing through the land back in the Exodus. And then we end with Bathsheba in verse 6, the second part. Who was Bathsheba? She was seduced by David and an adulterer. William Barclay in his commentary says this, If Matthew had ransacked the pages of the Old Testament for improbable ancestors, he could not have discovered four more incredible candidates. But notice, in so doing, God lifts off the pages this distinction between Jew and Gentile. In fact, in the New Testament, we find that there is no difference between male and female, between Jew and Gentile. The beautiful thing about God is that he has come to save the nations, not a particular people group. And so this is why we have, as Gentiles, most of us here, Gentiles have hope in a Messiah. But then that section ends with David the king. David the king. What do, we, what do we know about David the king? Well, we find David as a young boy keeping watch over his father's flock. But as a young man, he was confronted with an option. He heard Goliath defaming the God of Israel. And he decided to go out there with his sling and with a few circles of that swing and with one stone, he lands a rock right between the head, or right in the head of Goliath, knocking him to the ground. He cuts his head off. And Israel claims the victory. David was a brave man. In fact, so brave that he was sung about back then when it said Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. David was smart. He outwitted Saul several times to save his life. David becomes a great king who establishes Israel. At 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 13 through 14, it says, David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 2 Samuel 9, 15 says this, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. What we find in this first section is success, military success, the beginnings of economic success. It was common for people to thrive and to be well off in Israel at this time. 
David galvanized Israel, established it, and made it a military might. But if you follow David's biography beyond those things, you find that he was a sinner. David, one night on his rooftop, you know the story. He's on the rooftop. He looks across and he sees Bathsheba bathing herself. And he summons her, takes her, lies with her, has a child with her, and then kills her husband. David brought great harm upon his family in sinning like this. What we find is a series of treacherous acts like rape, murder, treason, where his own son wanted to kill him. At the end of David's life, we find that he numbered Israel, a great sin against Israel. In the course of action, God judged him for that. And 70,000 people died. That was David's life. And as we come to the end of David's life, we find that his glory is fading. In 1 Kings, we find this sad account of David almost losing his mind. We see his will and his mind deteriorating. The situation is this. David is old. He's cold. He's confused. His son, Adonijah, who knows his dad's about to die, was busy preparing to usurp the throne. His dad understands that this is going on, but he doesn't say anything about it. Bathsheba has to come in and remind David. She says, you yourself swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Well, it's then that David wakes up from his stupor, remembers this, and makes Solomon the king. But in this event, we see David's great glory had faded. He was old, cold, confused. And by 2 Kings chapter 2, he was dead. Hope and success will lead you to a false sense of security. No doubt Israel prospered under David, but David was a sinner. He let his family down and he let his nation down. Here's the application for us this morning. Success can blind us from our spiritual need of Christ. God knew this, and before there were ever any kings, including David, he says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 14. I'll read it for you. He says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe His commands, His laws, and His decrees that I'm about to give you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you would build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Forget the Lord our God. How could we do that? But then judges, the first generation that is born in the promised land. The Bible says, forgot the Lord their God. Success has a way of blinding us from our need of a Messiah. What do we put our trust in? 
Have you ever considered what do believers do who can't buy their way out of trouble? Well, they have the option to pray, trust, and wait. But if you can buy your way out of trouble, you don't have to pray, trust, and wait. And so with Israel, we find much success in this first set of kings. And we find a deteriorating situation where Israel is fading in glory and fading quickly. And they didn't know it. They didn't know it. Maybe success isn't your struggle. Maybe you just say, I just want peace. I want peace. I just want righteousness in my home. If only my kids would get along. If only we could just eradicate sin within our home. That'd be so awesome. If everybody just played nicely, we would be content. But notice this, that being good is not good enough. That typifies our second section, the second part of verse 6 all the way through verse 11. What we find is it begins with Solomon, it ends with Josiah. Who was Solomon? Well, Solomon picks up from David and far outdoes him in power. He's the wisest, richest man whose fame spread throughout the land. Now, you know the story of Solomon, how queen, the queen of Sheba came to him. She had heard these rumors, and after seeing David's great, or, uh, Solomon's great wealth and power, and riches, she said, I heard these exaggerations, but the half of it wasn't told me. They weren't exaggerations at all. And then she makes this statement. She says, how happy must the men be who live under your rule? Solomon was certainly an extreme king. And so that's what this second section kind of typifies is extremes. We have Solomon, the wisest man. We have Manasseh, the most wicked king. And then we have Josiah, the most godly king. These are extremes, but we end with this godly figure of Josiah. Solomon was certainly a king who had opportunities. Opportunities to serve the Lord, opportunities to exhibit righteousness. But he had also opportunities to sin. As you know, Solomon took a thousand women to be his wives and concubines. I have a hard time with one. (laughs) Just kidding, Lee, wherever you are. It is a blessing. Can you imagine a thousand women? But notice the danger here. 1 Kings 11, 4 says this, For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his David, as the heart of David his father was. And because of this, God says, I'm going to divide the kingdom. And what we find here is a kingdom starting to crumble. A kingdom starting to crumble. As I mentioned just a few seconds ago, Manasseh, down in verse 10. Who was Manasseh? I'm going to read a few verses for you out of 2 Kings. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there, you can. I'll just read them to you if you don't have it. 2 Kings 21. I'm going to read a few verses from this. This is Manasseh, verse 2. 
And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations, whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Verse 6. He burned his son as an offering. He used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Verses 10 through 13. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Have you ever heard news that made your ears tingle? I was trying to think back to when that might have been. And, and the, maybe the first time it ever happened was when my wife and I were dating. And she looked at me one day and she said, she said Jeff, I, I love you. My ears tingled. <laughs> now my ears tingle when she says dinner's ready, right? <laughs> How things have changed. Last week, I was in the car with my daughter. I hope she doesn't mind me telling the story, but I was in the car with my daughter. And she said, she said, you know what, Dad? You know what I like about you? Now stop right there. Really doesn't matter what comes next. She likes me. And as a dad, that's all that matters, right? She likes me. She said, you know, Dad, I, I like about you. My ears started to tingle. She says, you know, you don't even try to be cool. Really? Is that what makes me cool that I'm not cool? If that's the case, there's a lot of cool dads out here. (laughs) Manasseh was so wicked, he made the ears of the people tingle through the judgments of God. Now what you would think is that God's going to come on the scene and just wipe them out. I mean, think about this verse Manasseh was so wicked, it says, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. He was a wicked man. You say, if we only had a righteous person come on the scene, somebody who could assuage the wrath of God. Well, then you have Josiah. He comes on the scene. Who is Josiah? Josiah is eight years old when he begins to reign. He's the grandson of Manasseh. What's interesting about Josiah is he is not wicked. In fact, he is very righteous. And he sees the temple in disrepair. And so he makes plans to repair the temple. Not only that, through his serving there, they find the record of God's covenant with Israel. They find the scrolls of Scripture and that were buried and lost for generations, and they pull them out of the archives, and the priests come to Josiah, and they say, look at what we found. And so they read them in his hearing, and upon hearing them, he ripped, their, he ripped his clothes. He was that moved. He was not a king that typified pride. He was a king that typified much humility. 
Josiah had many reforms in Israel. He reestablishes the Passover feast in such a way that the scripture says it had not been practiced since the days of Samuel. Certainly, Josiah was a godly king. In fact, from scripture, you can make the case he was the most godly king that ever lived. In 2 Kings chapter 23 and verse 25, it says this, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. Most people think, well, David must have been the greatest, most godly king. But when you read this, you realize, no, Josiah. Josiah was the most righteous king. Now, certainly if there was goodness in anyone, it would be said like this. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. Sounds like the first and greatest commandment, doesn't it? And yet, what do we know about Josiah? Well, we know that his goodness was not good enough for God because in verse 26, it says, Still the Lord did not turn from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. Back in Matthew chapter 1, the end of that second section, verse 11, it says, And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Josiah's goodness was not good enough for God. He couldn't erase the sins of Israel. Israel was losing hope. In fact, they began a time called the deportation where Babylon comes in. Wipes out a lot of people. Takes others captive. This is when Daniel was taken captive with his friends. This is the time when Babylon comes in and burns their city and destroys their livelihood, their crops, their friends, and separates family members from each other and takes them back to Babylon to be either imprisoned or made slaves. Now, could you imagine for a moment if there was someone here, a prophet from God, or God himself, who said, because of your sins, in the next few months, your home is going to be wiped out. Not only your home, but your neighbor's home. You're going to wake up one day and your whole town is going to be leveled. Foreign people are going to march in. They're going to take you. They're going to take you far away where you'll be separated from your children and your spouses. Maybe never to see them again. This is the heinous reality of sin. It made their ears tingle. My friend, no amount of goodness in man can assuage God's wrath. By the 
end of 2 Kings 23, Josiah is dead and the hope of Israel is lost. The truth of the section is clear. No matter how great you think you are, you are at best a sinner facing deportation. What God is saying here is he's saying, listen, what happened to Israel is still happening today. If you die in your sins and you don't trust in a Messiah, if you're putting your trust in goodness, either your own or somebody else's, maybe a parent's, if you think that's going to carry weight with God, it doesn't. And there's a deportation waiting all men. Where it's called utter darkness, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's the great heinous crime of sin. The Bible says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are a lot of people who will face God one day and say, you know what, I was a good person. Let me into heaven, I was a good person. Matthew says, the words of Jesus, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Josiah's righteousness was commendable, but it wasn't perfect. And so this is the conclusion of that second section, that hope in your goodness will lead to a loss of security. For Israel, it was the deportation to Babylon. For sinners who are hoping in their own goodness, it is the deportation to a place called hell. But the good news is this. The genealogy doesn't end there. That's the beauty of this. It goes on. Look at the third section, verses 12 through 16. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, And on and on until we get to verse 16 where it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. The title Christ is the word Messiah. The one Israel had hoped for. And not just Israel. If you looked at Matthew chapter 12, it's not just Israel that hoped for this Messiah. Quoting Isaiah 42 and verse 21, it says, And in his name the Gentiles will hope. And we saw that already through the list of women's names who were not Israelites. God is inclusive. There is a righteousness that is effective and available for all of us which lies outside of you. And it brings us to our third and final king, and that is Jesus Christ. The Bible says he saved us not because of works of righteousness done on our accord, but according to his mercy, he saves us. That last section here. Hope in Christ will lead to life eternal. Hope in Christ will lead to eternal security. 
After the deportation, the light of Israel was growing dim in the names of men whose obscurity continues to grow. In fact, if you were to look at this name, only three of this, out of this list are recorded in the Bible. The rest of them are not. They were part of the genealogical records that they had at the time, but now it's been lost in history. There's a great spiritual truth there that sin leads away from greatness into obscurity. Men like Abayud or Zadok or Eleazar. These are men that we don't know much about. It's a dark time in Israel's history and they need something to place their hope in. David couldn't do it. Josiah was a failure. We need somebody new. That person is Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Who were his people? All people, all nations. This is the beauty of the Lord. What sins? Past, present, and future sins. As I said at the beginning, not just the penalty and power of sin, the penalty being that you're thrown into a lake of fire, not just the power of sin, the fact that it has this um, insatiable desire for you, you can overcome it, but also the presence of sin. Do you realize you sin less today because you are a believer? So when Jesus says he saves you from your sins, he's not just talking about he saves you so that you can go to heaven. He is saving you from sinning. That doesn't mean he doesn't allow us to sin. It just means that he saves us from sins that we normally would commit. Because of his righteousness in us, we now have the ability to act righteously and not sinfully. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. This is our hope. He says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is our hope, that we are saved from sin, that we are sharing in this righteousness, that the sins that we could have committed today already, we didn't commit because we are righteous. Now, all of us have committed sins today. Don't get me wrong. But that righteousness means something. It means we have the ability to live as Christ lived. Now we have the hope of righteousness being in us, which means love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faith. The fruit of the Spirit is exhibited in us. Why? Because of the righteousness of Jesus. We're celebrating the first Advent on 
December 25th. We're also looking forward to the second advent or the second coming of Christ. And we could do so because we belong to him and we look forward to it with hope. So in closing, what have we learned this morning? Hope in success leads to a false sense of spiritual security. Hope in goodness leads to a loss of security. And hope in Christ leads to eternal security. There are plenty, plenty of examples of people claiming to be king with no real proof. In ancient Rome or Greece, for example, if one was trying to make their case that they were king, it would have been easy. All they would have to do is pull out a coin with their image stamped on it. Today we have many people falsely claiming that they are the king of their own lives. When in fact they are made in the image of God. They are stamped with the image of God. Christ is their king, albeit they reject him as king and they want to assume that role. Any thought of Christ returning makes them nervous, unsettled, and even angry. The world is on edge. Have you noticed? The world is on edge right now. Could it be that Satan and the rulers know that their time is short? For those of us who have accepted Christ as our king and live by his rules, we look forward to, as Matthew points out, to this tremendous hope that Christ saved us from our sins but will finish the job one day and make us perfectly righteous. What a joy that is. We don't dread the coming Messiah. We look forward to it. We sing about it. We hear it preached. We get excited about this, this stuff. This is good. But not everybody has that excitement. It may not be true of you. You may not have accepted Christ as your Messiah. You may be blinded by your success and thinking you're okay. You may be blinded by your goodness and think you're okay. But this passage makes it painfully clear that no one is okay outside of Christ. For it's only him that will save you from your sins. Would you turn to Christ today? Would you make him your Messiah? Let's pray. Father, Lord, we commit this time and this word to you. We pray that, Lord, you would use it in our lives to encourage those that are saved. Lord, that we have a righteousness working in us that is exciting. We can do the work that you've called us to do. We don't have to be hindered by sin. We don't have to be weighed down by the weights of this world. We can pursue life and godliness because you've given us the ability to do so. But Lord, I pray for those that may not have that hope. Maybe they came in here this morning thinking, they're pretty good. They're good people. When they compare themselves to other people, they're pretty good. But when we compare ourselves to you, we're nothing. Maybe riches have blinded them from their need of you. How hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. Or may it not be true of anyone here, Lord, that they are blinded by their success. 
people. And may we see Christ as who he is, our hope, our hope of salvation. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.